You're listening to The Brilliant Ones Podcast with me, your host, Donnie Adams, a show about entrepreneurs and the companies they build. Join me weekly as I speak with entrepreneurs from all over who share their experiences and advice on the companies they created. And be sure to follow us on YouTube and Instagram at The Brilliant Ones. Hey, folks, welcome to another episode of The Brilliant Ones Podcast. I have a special guest with me, Faraz Hamani, CEO and founder of Pebble Ridge Capital. For us, welcome to the Brilliant Ones. I appreciate you for having me, Donnie. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited. You are doing something truly incredible, and I don't think anyone is even doing this, I, to my knowledge. Um, what you're doing in real estate is just amazing, just around self-storage, you know, facilities and strip, center, strip centers investments, which is, I mean, you tell me. I mean, it's, it's something that, Again, the real estate industry is going so many ways, right? And the market's up, it's down, interest rates are high. Would love to just kind of dive into what you guys are doing over at Pebble Ridge and kind of learn more about your background. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, Pebble Ridge Capital is a company that I officially founded, as in the name Pebble Ridge Capital has existed for about one year now. But I have been involved in real estate going on about four or five years uh, I started out just like you, uh, you know, me and you were both talking right before the show that, you know, we have a tech sales background. So when I was 22, I got my first job in tech sales. I was lucky enough to have a manager that was into real estate investing. He owned rental property. So he would always push me for us. You're getting these bonuses. You're doing a good job in sales. Take those bonuses and invest it into real estate. You know, it was the first person that ever gave me even the idea in my head that I could own real estate as an investment. He helped me buy some properties with my bonuses. One thing led to another. And over time, I got the itch. I loved real estate. It was something I could wrap my head around. It's an investment I could really understand. So I'm like, how can we do this bigger? How can we do this with something we have more control over? And I landed on self-storage and commercial real estate. And now what we're doing at Pebble Ridge, which I love, it's kind of what you alluded to, we're really, really different in this space. Our whole thing is we see an industry in self-storage that is considered real estate, but really we're doing all the things a small business owner has to do. We have digital marketing, search engine optimization, customer service, dynamic pricing, and our bet was, I bet we could come in, take a very modern approach to these things, run this business a way that no other people really run it, and end up with a storage facility that is way more profitable than if anyone else was running it. We're taking a really antiquated industry, modernizing it using technology and automation, and creating a lot more profit out of these storage facilities than other operators could probably produce. And that's where our magic is, and that's what we do every day. Wow, no, that, that's exciting. And so, so, uh, so take me back to when did you get your first... Uh, real estate property I was 22 years old so going on about six years now okay and so what so type of property was it it was a single family home it was a rental property um, actually in fact the first property that I bought was a property that I lived in and my manager at the time gave me the idea hey go ahead and buy buy a property stop putting your money into rent put it into something that's building you equity buy a three-bedroom house rent the two of the bedrooms to your buddies they'll cover your mortgage you're living for free they're paying your note. They're paying down your loan. And that's what I did for the first year. And it was a fun year. It was like two of my best friends and me living in that house. And because it was like, okay, this is something I can wrap my head around. Buying a home is not something that's so, you know, in your head. You haven't done it before. You're like, oh, I'm 22 years old. There's no way. That's not meant for me. Maybe down the road. Maybe when I'm married and I got some kids, I'll do it. But after kind of just getting past the mental hurdle of doing that first one, I'm like, dude, I can do this again. I just got to go crush it at my sales job, get some more bonuses. And we did it. And then about a year later, I bought my next house. And then every year for a couple of years after that, bought another rental property that I would just go and put up on rent. Uh, but they were also just single family homes. 
Now, this was Austin. So did you know, I mean, you're, you're in tech. Did you know Austin was becoming this big tech hub and eventually more people were going to start going there? And, of course, that would drive up the home value. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know. I did, did not you support, know what was going to happen. Did you see the market at that time or you were just, no hey, I'm, I want to make some quick cash? You know, oh, like my God. Just... No, I did not foresee the market, man. I look at those houses as that was like my lottery ticket. That was like my blessing that I got. I yeah. could not have foreseen what happened to the prices of those homes. Like To put context, I mean, some of the homes we bought in 2016, 2017, we sold them for 2x what we bought them for just two or three years later. Yeah. Could not have predicted that. That was total luck. You know, we bought them or I bought them thinking, uh, hey, you know, I'll just make some money on the rent. I'll make a few hundred dollars in cash flow. And, you know, over time, I'm, I knew Austin was growing. I was, you know, the tech scene is growing and, uh, you know, high income earners are coming to Austin. So I'm like, over time, this thing's going to grow. You know, maybe when I'm getting close to retirement, I'll sell them. But I did not expect like in two or three years, the prices were just going to double like that. And I'm, you know, like I said, it was it was like hitting the lotto. For yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, too, especially how now the house price now the home prices in austin are just almost over a million dollars now yeah it's nuts yeah it is crazy um and i almost i mean not almost i do feel really bad like i'll give you a story when we were selling so 2020 and 2021 i sold pretty much all the houses i still have one out there in austin that i still own but we i sold everything i would put something on the market it would get 13 or 14 offers in a week 13 like out of all out of 14 offers 13 of them would come from people that were like living in california or new york just buying it as an investment one would come from someone living in austin and that was always the lowest offer so it was like if you were trying to buy a home to live in you were totally like out of luck it was it was a tough place to be buying at that time yeah and now more investors are flocking to austin buying up a lot of, and then a lot of yeah. californians uh are buying out in austin too or her and they're doing like cash offers absolutely cash offers no inspection no loan and it's kind of, you know, it, it, it seems kind of absurd sometimes. They're coming in and they're buying houses, 500, 600, or $50,000, $60,000 above asking price. But you got to remember, in California, I mean, a million dollar house is cheap in California. And so a lot of the people I would talk to, I'm like, you know, how are you guys coming and buying these homes at outrageous prices? They're like, well, we look at Austin like maybe it's the next San Francisco. There's so much tech growth happening here, so many high income earners happening. If you look at what happened in San Francisco, home prices are in the multi millions. Who's to say that won't happen in Austin? And that was the bet that those guys were making. I can't say that that's the same type of bet I would want to make, but that was their thinking and coming and just paying absurd prices for homes in Austin. Right. And so now you got you got a few homes in your portfolio. I'm assuming are you you're still you okay at this point? Do you see yourself foreseeing? Okay, I think I can make a career in real estate or I'm going to continue to work, you know, my day-to-day -day job. No, I never thought this would be something I do full-time. I grew up in a house where like my dad went to college, he worked a job, he worked in oil and gas here in Houston for 25 years. We don't have many entrepreneurs in our family. That's we're you know, we don't come from an entrepreneurial background. So this was never something in my mind. It was like I'll go to college, I got a job in tech, working in sales, worked at companies like Oracle and Google. I'm like this is it. I'm on the right track. I did did everything I'm supposed to do. Um, it really wasn't until we sold a lot of the homes in 2020, 2021. We were like, okay, well, I want to reinvest this money, but houses are way too expensive. I can't buy more houses. Started buying commercial property. When I bought that commercial property, I'm like, I don't have enough money to buy it on my own. I gathered some investors to help buy it with me. The point I'm trying to get to is next thing I know, I'm managing a business where I own two or three commercial properties and I have 20 investors and I'm keeping them up to date. I'm preparing reports for them. I'm managing the properties on my own. I, I basically built a business without realizing that's what I was doing. And at a certain point, that business was taking more hours than my actual day job. So that was the first time it actually even clicked in my mind. Like, wait a second, I could just do this full time. And 
you 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 were working for Google, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you were working for Google, and yeah. then eventually you. Yeah, I saw because I saw the article. Ex Google, you know, employees start yeah. you know, the yeah. real estate company. Yeah. So, um, how did you feel about that? And I, re- I read the story. I mean, you you were in a script center, talking to your manager, saying, "Hey, this is this is my last day," and you showed her what you were working on. Yeah. What was what was that feeling like? Yeah, that was funny, but yes. Um, I remember being on the fence about it for so long. I mean, I left my job before I left my job, before I told my manager I'm leaving, I probably agonized over it for, for months, three or four months because I loved my job. I was at a great company. I was making really, really good money, you know, more money than I thought I would ever make in my life, honestly, at that age. And I, and I, and I enjoyed the career and I enjoyed pride in saying that I work at a company like Google, (laughs) but Man, I felt more pride in coming to my investors at that time and telling them, dude, we had a really, really good month. I'm cutting everybody a check for, you know, X thousand dollars and seeing the reaction and seeing like the sense of confidence they had in me was like an unparalleled feeling. And I remember that day I I meant to tell my manager, you know, I had a meeting set up with her. I was going to tell her, hey, I'm leaving. And I got so caught up at the strip center. We were doing some renovations, repairs. I looked at my watch. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be late. I'm just going to take this meeting right now. And I just pulled out my phone, jumped on the Google Hangout. And I'm like, hey, I got something to tell you. I'm going to this, you know, I'm I'm putting in my resignation. She's like, what? And then I just click the button, flip the camera around. I'm like, yeah, this is this is what's taking up my time now. This is what I'm going to do. You know, managing these strip centers, managing these storage facilities. And it, it was it was a fun conversation. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so at that point, did, did you did you, you know, after, after, after that meeting, you were like, oh, crap. Or were you like, I'm pumped for the future. Right. Or yeah. it, like, what was that yeah. feeling like? It was just like, OK, now it's time to get to work. Right. Yeah, big time. It was like, now I got to get to work. I mean, there was definitely a dreadling for a few weeks. I'm like, oh man, I'm on top of the world and this and that. But no, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't many, many days, even till today sometimes on a bad day where I'm like, damn, what did I do? Why did I leave Google, man? It's the easiest money then. I was making good money. It still creeps in my head sometimes, but but only on a bad day, man. A hundred percent. I, I, this was the best thing I've done in my life. I'm so happy I made this decision. Uh, there's no regrets. Yeah, no, that, that's incredible. Uh, and especially, you know, in today's age, a lot of like millennials are quitting their jobs and everyone's going to start a business and going into doing things that they love, right? Because now it's, it's, it's so much, it's uh, so much options and it's just a lot to do and a lot of ways you can make money in different ways. Uh-huh. Did you ever think, well, could I do both? Was that ever a thought? I did both for a while. And I didn't like the feeling. I felt like I was half-assing both. I was doing 30, 40 hours a week at Google, 30, 40 hours a week in the real estate business. I was also recently married at that time. I was trying to be a good husband, be a good son to my parents. And I was like, I just feel like I'm failing at everything. I didn't enjoy the feeling of just being tired, stressed, and giving 50% to everything. I said, that's... It's, it's not something I enjoyed. It's not how I like to do my work. I like to be all in. So I had to make a decision. Do I want to be all in to this career path at Google, which was very, very enticing, or do I want to be all into this real estate business where I can eat what I kill, I can make what I want to make of it, and if I really bust my ass, I could be you know, at my age 50, age 60 year goal in five or 10 years. And that was the biggest thing that drew me into the, the unlimited upside and the unlimited potential to make what you want to make of the experience is the biggest reason that I left and I chose building my own business. Nice. Now, was the name already chosen? Pe- uh, Pebble Ridge Capital? Was that already together? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, Pebble Ridge. I wish I had a cool story. People always ask me, what is Pebble Ridge, man? What is it? Right. I, I don't have a, I'm, I just wanted something that sounded professional, that sounded yeah, credible. Yeah, yeah. And we literally had the conversation. We're like, wow, 
let's think of street names or like subdivision names or something. Those seem credible. I wish I had a cool story about Pebble Ridge, but yeah, that name was uh, just something we came up with. So just so, because we're at a point where we had investors now, right? And a lot of them were just people I knew, friends, but then some of them were friends of friends or a coworker of a friend, people I didn't really have a previous relationship with. So I wanted to put my best foot forward and say, yeah, I'm not just some dude out here wheeling and dealing. I have a legitimate company and a legitimate business around managing significant amount of your money uh, and helping it grow through investing in real estate. And I wanted to have that professional appearance, so I just picked a name that sounded nice. <laughs> <laughs> so so at, at this point, um, how did you get into the uh, self-storage uh, facilities? Yeah. Believe it or not, I found out about self-storage investing from Twitter. There is a few, there's actually a community of people on Twitter around commercial real estate that invest in commercial real estate. And specifically in this one niche, this one subset of self-storage, there's like five or 10 guys on Twitter. I, I feel like I'm not one of them that just puts out content about like, here's why I like self-storage. Here's why it's an asset class that is so unique and so different from everything else in real estate. And here's why there's so much opportunity here. And I, I think I read the tweets from some of these people for almost a year before I jumped in and I'm like, you know what? I, I feel like I can wrap my head around it. I feel like I understand it. I feel like this is exciting. I learned probably 80 or 90% of what I know about self-storage from Twitter. Wow. Now, this is after you got how So how, how big is the portfolio now when you kind of discover this, 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 I mean, this uh, arbitrage, right, around in the market, around self-storage, uh, self-storage units, yeah. right, these facilities, and how did you know, okay, maybe we should just, we're going, we're in commercial real estate, but let's, Maybe we should kind of go into this route because I think there's a huge way we can make money. Yeah. So, you know, to give you the backstory, right? We had the houses, we sold them. We have this money. And when I say we, I said, I mean, there's some people that invested with me in the houses and all that. So we're sitting on this money. We're like, we can't put it back in the houses. Let's look at commercial real estate. Well, I said, well, I'm from Houston. I know Houston like the back of my hand. Let's find little pockets of Houston where we can find mispriced assets, where we can find opportunity. That was our original, the original charter of Pebble Ridge. We're going to be buying anything in the Houston area that makes sense. So I bought the strip mall. Now I'm reading Twitter. I buy the storage facility. And man, after 30 days of owning that storage facility, probably less, I'm like, screw everything else. We're doing just storage. This is where the opportunity is. In the first 30 days, we took the revenue up 30% from what the previous owner had it. Uh, we had the whole thing running on autopilot. I'm like, this is unlike anything I've done in real estate before. And I totally understand why there's a whole community of people that speak so highly of self-storage. And I feel like the edge that I'm bringing with my background in tech and software, we can go far. And it was 30 days after we bought that first storage facility. I said, we're not doing anything else besides storage. That was about a year ago. January 2022, we bought the first storage facility. We bought 10 more since then all over the country. Wow. So, okay, when you think of self-storage, what... I mean, how can you increase, you know, like I, when I think of regular real estate, you can go flip real estate, yeah. improve, add, you know, a, a door, granite countertop. Uh -huh. How can you improve a self-storage facility? Yeah. So you nailed it. Though here's how you improve real estate traditionally. You go buy a house, like a fixer-upper, fix and flip. And a lot of people in social media talk about it. Buy an old house, run down, we'll put in new floors, granite countertop, paint, new facade. It's going to be nice. And now instead of renting it for 800 bucks, maybe we can rent it for 1200 bucks a month. And boom, I've generated an added value. But the key part was, okay, how did I get from $800 of rent to $1,200 of rent? I had to put in a lot of work, renovation, change the physical characteristics of that building. Here's how you do the same thing in storage. If I want to get my rent, my monthly rent from maybe $8,000 a month across all my tenants up to $10,000 a month. The way I do that in storage, one thing that's very unique about storage is there's no long-term leases. 
Like when I rent a house or you rent an apartment, you're signing a 12-month lease. When you rent office space or a retail center, you're signing a five-year lease. In storage, it's month-to-month, meaning I've come by the facility January. I can send a notice saying, starting February, this is the new rent. I don't have to wait. Second really unique thing about storage. An apartment, you're paying 1000 bucks a month, 1200 bucks a month, $2,000 a month sometimes. In storage, the typical customer is paying 60 to $70 a month, meaning if I come and say, Hey, you're paying 60 bucks in rent. Starting next month, you're paying 80 bucks. It's $20. It's not breaking the bank for the end customer. It's not something, certainly not something that they're going to be like, you know what, I'm getting a U-Haul. I'm packing all my stuff and leaving over $20 a month. Typically, that doesn't mess with them. But what happened to me? I just took them from 60 to 80. That's 33% increase in revenue. And I did not have to install a granite countertop to do that. All I had to do was understand the pricing of the market, be able to push pricing month over month. If I lose customers, I need to be really good at marketing to bring new customers in at higher prices. And that is how I quote unquote like rehab or flick fix up a storage facility. It's all on the operational side rather than the physical side. So is there any parts during the year that business slows down regarding or people, I'm assuming people need storage throughout the whole entire year or. Yeah, there's slow seasons for sure. So storage, one of the biggest drivers behind why somebody rents self storage is when they're moving. And moving usually happens in the spring and summertime. That's when schools are wrapping up or kids are coming out of school or people are moving jobs. So winter, and especially in some markets, wintertime is like blizzard. You know what I mean? It's snow and it's not something where people want to come and unload a bunch of furniture and put it in a storage unit. Winter tends to be slower. Spring and summer tends to pick up. So there's some seasonality, but it's relatively stable throughout the year. And so now you're focusing on self-storage. Did you how did you build out the system as far as in the marketing behind it, right? And say, okay, how are we going to get attract new buyers? Yeah, absolutely. So again, our whole philosophy here, we looked at the people that run storage facilities. A lot of them are retirees. They've owned it for a long time. They have not tapped into a lot of what makes a business work in 2022. Very few of the places that we buy in and the markets we buy in, and by the way, we tend to pick markets for self-storage where we're not buying in L.A. or New York or even the middle of Houston. We're buying in kind of more rural, smaller markets. The reason is the people there are not running Google ads. They're not doing PPC. They're not doing SEO. So we said, what are all the best practices a business does today? How can we bring those core competencies into our business? So we work with a marketing agency that does digital marketing for us at our storage facilities. And a lot of the places we own storage, we're the only ones spending money on digital marketing. And that's how the modern customer finds you. When someone needs to rent storage in 2022 or 23D, they just Google search storage units near me. And if we're the only one doing marketing, we're the only one they're going to see. And we're able to acquire customers at a much more rapid pace than anyone else that we're competing with in our markets. And a lot of other things too. We do contactless rentals. When COVID started, that whole contactless thing became big. Hey, I want to be able to do everything from my phone without interacting with a person. We made it so that you can rent from your phone. You can sign a lease from your phone. You can make a payment from your phone. You can do everything from your phone. And a lot of markets, we're the only ones that offer that. And these are the things that set us apart and are able to help us get more customers and drive more revenue than anyone else in the markets that we're in. Now, how did your investors feel about that? You know, they're like, oh, did they pull back? So what are some challenges you had early on? convincing people that this is the you know the route that you yeah early on and for anyone out there that's an entrepreneur that's had to raise money man it's it's such a challenging thing because it's the hardest when you first start not only just because oh you maybe you know you've never done it and you're uncomfortable because it can feel very uncomfortable trying to raise money or or convince someone to hand you a hundred thousand dollars for this business idea but also because you don't have a track record you have not established a level of trust i have this great idea that i can tell people 
But today it's so much easier to raise money than it was a year ago because now I'm not saying I have an idea. I'm saying I have a portfolio of 10 properties and you can look at the financials and what I'm saying actually works and it's become so much easier. So the challenges at the beginning was really like we were suggesting something that was just so totally different from what was being done. We were not just saying let's buy real estate. I'm saying we were saying let's invent a whole new business model on how to run this specific type of real estate, a form of real estate that not a lot of people are even familiar with and self-storage, right? It's not something very sexy. It's not glamorous. And so getting past that hurdle was tough. But honestly, to tell you honestly, this is kind of a personal thing. The toughest part about raising money early on was just like my own insecurities. It was so scary being at that time I was like 26 years old, going to people that are 40, 50, 60 doctors, lawyers that are established, that are successful. And me as like a, someone in my early to mid 20s saying, yeah, I know I haven't done anything and I haven't proven anything, but I think you should trust me with $100,000 was like nerve wracking for me when I first started. <laughs> That, that is that I can only imagine how how nervous that how nervous you may have been. Yeah. How'd you eventually say, you know what? How'd you get past those nerves? Well, practice makes perfect for sure. I fell on my face a ton of times. I remember, oh man, I like cringe when I think about it. Some of the times where like I would just be the nervousness would just show so much, you know what I mean? And I would right. fail as a result. Like I would just talk to an investor and I would try to think I'm smooth, you know, talk about some other stuff and this and then just slip it at the end. Hey, I have this deal. You know, I'd really, I'd, I would really like if you could invest and it would just come out so nervously and then I'd walk away like, oh my God, oh my God. And so failure was a great teacher for me, for sure. Mm. Doing that 10, 20 times, falling over and over and over and over again. It's like, okay, I got to change it up. I got to do something different. Getting a few wins helps. You get one or two people to have some faith and confidence in you. That does, that does wonders for what you think you can accomplish. Um, and then of course, now over time, now that I've done this for a while, I feel like we have the track record now. But the biggest thing is, and kind of have to flip the switch in your head. I'm not here with my hand out saying, can you do me a favor and give me money? I had to flip the switch saying, I have an opportunity for you as a doctor or a lawyer, or someone successful in their field. You don't have the time to come and invest in a piece of real estate and manage a storage facility. I'm offering you the opportunity to invest in this asset class that you otherwise probably couldn't get into because I'm going to do the work on your behalf. I'm going to manage it. I'm going to steward the investment. And this is not me with my hand out, but rather me coming here with an opportunity for you. And when I think about it that way, it gave me a, so much more confidence to come and engage in those conversations and feel like I'm actually adding value. Nah, that's, that's a good way to, to put it, you know, and, and, get, and, and building up that confidence. So did they, another way too, I, I would think was your, your team, right? I'm assuming that you had, it's not just you raising this money. I'm sure you had, right, putting people in the right places to help you build the, this fund. How'd you go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, so when I first started, it was pretty much just me. I didn't have a team or employees. Now we have about nine people working with us. But at that time, I did everything in the business. When I say everything, I mean, I was raising money. I was trying to find deals. I was answering the phone when customers would call our storage facility. I was collecting payments. I was even going to the storage facility every week and sweeping units. I did everything when I first started. But I was definitely very lucky. I had a few people, like I said, a few people that really believed in me um, that I wouldn't be here without them, that I think intentionally went out of their way so that this is a young person who has ambition, who wants to make something of himself, and we want to support him. And I wouldn't be anywhere without some of those people who not only came and backed me, who had get invested in me, but also went and told their friends about me and said, hey, I'm investing with him. I have a lot of faith in Faraz. I'm putting my money with him. I think it's a good opportunity and you should too. And had I not gotten the support from those first few people, I don't think we would have ever gotten off the ground. Wow. Nice. And so now what does that team, what does that nine people, nine person team look like, right? 
Yeah. So funny enough, actually, more than half the team is overseas. We have about six people that are in the Philippines. Uh-huh. Uh, we, I love, love, love working with people from the Philippines. The most common reason people outsource to the Philippines is, you know, to take advantage of just the cost and, you know, cost of living differences that you can pay someone in the Philippines, maybe $5 an hour rather than pay someone in the U.S. $20 an hour for the same work. Mm-hmm. $5 an hour in the Philippines is like a very, very livable wage, above average income for them. The work ethic they give is incredible. So we have a team, the Philippines handles back office work, customer service, property management. We have a team in the US that handles acquisitions, finding new deals, analyzing new deals, financial analysis, running transactions. And then I spend a lot of my time overseeing all the different parts of the business, finding new ways to grow, new innovation to bring into the business, and then talking with investors and continuing to grow kind of our base of capital that we use for these deals. Yeah, no, the Philippines is great. Um, the young lady, Kim, who edits my videos, she's out the Philippines. Yeah. Like I was telling you earlier, yeah, she, she does great work. So. <laughs> That's the phenomenal thing. You know, yeah. people I always talk about the Philippines and people have this assumption, oh, we just do it to save money. But I'll be honest, sometimes you give me somebody here in the U.S. and someone in the Philippines for the same pay rate, I might still take someone from the Philippines because the work quality that and the work ethic that they have is just phenomenal. Yeah, no, it's absolutely phenomenal for sure. And so, so now where the the market is now you know with, with all that's going on in the world where, where do you see you know pebble ridge going as far from an investment standpoint or are there still some hiccups in the real estate market that you're looking to kind of overcome yeah it's a challenging time in real estate you alluded to it in the introduction i mean interest rates are high because interest rates are high it's really still it becomes that much harder to find a deal that even though you're paying this high interest rate, you still have a lot of profit left over. It makes the hurdle so much higher to find a quality deal. To be honest, as a result, we've, we've slowed down a little in our business. Between July and December of last year, we bought nine storage facilities. And we did that with like a skeleton crew. We didn't even have the full nine people we have. The first three months of this year, we are under contract to buy one facility so far. And we have spent 3x the amount of money, have 3x the amount of employees. It's been a challenge. but. To kind of go back to, okay, what does that mean for Pebble Ridge and you know what does that mean in terms of how we're building our business? We have a dedication to quality. We have a lot of investors ready to go saying, take my money. We want to put it into storage. We've seen the results. We want to do it. There are definitely a bunch of average deals that I could go buy as a way to get their capital out the door, collect some fees, make some money on them. But that's really not the way we want to build our business. We were talking about this today in our team. I would rather do three or four quality deals a year high quality deals where I have a lot of the upside that I own personally, my investors are gonna be incredibly happy, and I'm gonna build a lot of trust with them because I'm gonna deliver exceptional results on those deals. I would rather do that than to just go buy 10, 15 average deals in this really, really challenging environment and maybe the results will be mediocre. I'd rather sit, wait, be patient for the right opportunities to come. Right, no, that's a good way to kind of put it, you know, because especially, there's so much uncertainty now, and then there's been a huge, I mean, every time I, I look, there's so many layoffs. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it's it's layoff after layoff after layoff, yeah. right? And it's so much uncertainty going on in the world right now. And it's mm-hmm. important to make sure, you know, it sounds to me that you, you obviously have a game plan, right? To kind of say, okay, this is how we're going to continue continue to grow. Yep. But do you ever think in the back of your head where another opportunity may exist in real estate? Or has that come to the forefront yet? Of course. You're an entrepreneur. You know about shiny object syndrome where, man, you know, there's always, you see somebody, especially when you're going through a rough patch, everything just looks a little greener on the other side. You know what I mean? So yeah, I see it. I mean, there's so many trendy things happening in real estate right now. One of the big ones is like Airbnb, short-term rentals. Yeah, You see awesome pictures on social media of people with these amazing, beautiful Airbnbs with like a basketball court in the back and like swimming pool and they're 
posting the numbers they make and it's just amazing and then you're sitting here like damn i can't buy a deal i haven't bought a deal in three months of course shiny object syndrome is real if you if you wouldn't be a true entrepreneur if you didn't have that curiosity that came out every now and then like let me see what's going on over there but that is kind of one of the hallmarks of an entrepreneur but i think what separates the regular entrepreneur from a very successful one is who's going to stay the course and who's going to stay focused and avoid distraction even when things are rough and even when things are slow who's going to stay the course and that's what we have tried to make an intentional effort on that hey things might be slow right now but we have a lot of faith in our model we have proven results we know things won't be like this forever interest rates are not permanent the state of the market is not permanent let's stay our course let's continue to work hard and let's be prepared for when the opportunities show up nice and so what strategies have you implemented to go f find those deals, that those those off-market deals? We do a lot of cool stuff, man. So I told you I was excited about the podcast because I get to talk about all the nerdy stuff we do in storage that yeah. I love. So you, you, you said one important thing, off-market deals. So an off-market deal, basically, the, the way real estate usually is transacted here, just think about selling a house. Someone's like, you know what, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to call a realtor. Realtor, can you go put a sign in my house that says for sale, put it on Zillow, and then a bunch of people will come make offers. And then a buyer comes, sees a house that's listed for sale, they make an offer. That's how most real estate is transacted in this country. We circumvent that whole process. We're like, nope, that's not for us. There's a lot of inefficiency there. What we do is we have built software and built tools that just go online and scrape. Here are all the storage facilities in the US. And here's who owns them, and here's their phone number, and here's where they live. And we have a person or a couple of people now, their whole job is just to reach out to these people. And we just say, hey, our company, Pebble Ridge, buys storage facilities all over the country. Can we make you an offer for yours? And we just go direct to the owner. This person has not listed it for sale. They have not given any indication that they want to sell. We just say, would you be interested in seeing an offer? And for every thousand people we ask that to, maybe three of them say yes. And for every 50 that say yes, we'll probably land one of them. But the result of that is we're buying deals that nobody else is looking at. This is not listed for sale. There's not 10 other people bidding on it. There's no broker or realtor in the middle telling the person, hey, your facility is actually worth $3 million. They're like, yeah, make me an offer. So we're like, all right, $2 million. Like, that sounds good, $2 million, life-changing money. And we're able to buy deals way below what anyone else is buying them for. And so we've doubled down on this off-market strategy. Within that, we like to find where are the best markets to buy in. One unique thing about storage, it's got what we call a micro market, meaning your customers all live usually about five miles away from you. Five mile radius around your storage facility, that's where 95% of your customers are. It's not like renting an apartment where like, maybe I'll move across town because that's where the bars are and that's where I work. You're gonna rent storage next to where you live. So if you can find these little five mile pockets throughout the country where, hey, rents are unusually high here, or hey, there happens to be a lot of demand for storage and every facility is full, let's identify those Let's go off market and call and reach out to the owners of these facilities and let's find the ones that are mismanaged where there's no website and there's no ads and their prices are way below everyone else. Let's buy them. Let's modernize the operation. Let's get the prices up and let's start bringing in the dough. And that's what we do. So do you guys focus on a certain region within the U.S.? Like what regions have the most storage? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's storage all over the country at this point. We've primarily focused in the southeast United States because that's where a lot of population growth is happening. And just with any form of real estate, you know, you need some kind of demand drivers. Like you said with Austin, hey, there were so many tech jobs coming. So many people were moving. That's why the home prices went up. Storage has a similar thing. If all of a sudden in that five mile radius, there's a lot more people living there and there's not many new storage facilities. You just have 100,000 new people all competing to get the same storage units. Prices go up. And so we definitely look at those things and we focus on the Southeast United States because that's where we're seeing a lot of population growth. Now, are you all focused on rural areas as well? Or yeah, we own a lot primarily in rural areas, actually. Really? Wow. Yeah. 
and then and this because they're rural areas. I'm assuming it doesn't have nothing to do with obviously the population. Or I mean, you tell me, is it is it usually those are really good deals just because it's a rural area, not much is going on, but people are still storing a lot of items. Yeah. So I'll tell you why rural markets are really interesting because a lot of people raise their eyebrows when I tell them, "Yep, we buy in rural markets." Because they're like, "Well, I mean, those towns aren't growing. There's not population growth, and there's not you know that land's not going up in value. You're not going to get appreciation. Why do you buy there?" The answer is supply and demand. Out in these rural markets, a lot of people, you know, ha- need access to storage. You know, they don't live in nice big apartments or massive homes where they have room to keep their stuff. So storage is in high demand. But the most important part is supply. In a small town, there's no big real estate developer that's like, you know what, I'm going to pick this tiny little small town and I'm going to build a thousand unit facility here because the demographics don't support it. So what happens is more and more people need storage, but there's only the same amount of storage facilities that have been there for the last 20 years. That's all there is. There might be a town that's only got four storage facilities. It's a combined total of maybe 1,000 storage units, and it's the 5,000 people competing for those storage units. We go to those towns, we see everyone is full. Every storage unit, every storage facility is 100% occupied. And we know that nobody else is gonna come build more storage here, it's too rural. When we see that, we're like, supply and demand is out of whack. There is not enough supply of storage, and it is such high demand. And if you remember from basic economics classes, when supply and demand are out of whack, when demand is so much and supply is so low, you go up on your prices, right? just like they do with Air Jordans or something like that. We're gonna have a slow supply, there's gonna be such high demand, it's gonna hit the aftermarket, prices are gonna go up, and that's what we do in self-storage. We go buy in those markets where everyone's full, prices go up. We go ahead and raise prices. Now, are you all still focusing on on strip centers as well? Not anymore. I think we wanted to get really, really good at one thing, and we wanted to build our competency in one thing and show investors that we're dedicated to this one thing. So all we do is storage. Oh, okay. So, wow. What what made that? I mean, obviously, you want to get good at one thing, right? Focusing on, on self-storage. Yeah. But how is you know the real estate market for, for strip centers? And what, what are the future of it? Strip centers in particular, I think, are awesome investment. Honestly, if I wasn't doing s- storage, I'd be in strip centers for sure. Um, and strip centers, what we're talking about is like, Literally what I mean, like your neighborhood strip mall, right? Not the big shopping center that's got right. Best Buy and Home Depot, but the little strip mall that's got the donut store, coffee shop. Houston has a lot salon. of strip centers. So and the one thing about centers. Houston is like, they're just, uh, it's so congested because it has so like, congested. you see so many, you see almost like 20 different companies all in this one small, small strip yeah. center. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. There's thousands and thousands of strip centers in Houston. There's a ton of opportunity for that stuff here. And it's an awesome asset class for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the neat part about it too is, Houston has no zoning laws. And so yeah. You, you kind of have, like, I don't know, a daycare over here, a place that sells uh, tobacco, yeah. something like that. <laughs> you know? It's yeah, like, absolutely. Even where we're recording right now, we're on downtown Houston. You'll drive around and you'll see, like, a burger stand next to a house, next to a daycare, next to a gymnasium, like, all on one street, you know? And it's, it's really interesting. And I think uh, there's a lot of benefit to not having those zoning laws. I mean, you see funny stuff like that happen sometimes, but I think Houston has done a really, there's a reason houses in Houston for being such a big city are still so affordable. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're very loose on our zoning. Yeah. And so what other asset classes do you think are, are good investments during this time? Yeah. So I'll give you my cop-out answer, then I'll give you the real answer. Honestly, there are people making millions and millions and millions of dollars of it every single asset class. There's really hard to go wrong if you just find something, you're intelligent about it, you stick to it for a long enough time, you'll probably make a good amount of money in it. But what are the asset classes I like today? Storage is a good one because actually storage has a lot of factors uh, that even when there's a recession or there's a downtime, storage actually has a lot of things that go in its favor. People have to downsize, people have to relocate after a layoff. 
people are, you know, there's a lot of things that happen that actually are fueling demand for storage. It's usually called the recession resilient asset in real estate. Yeah, that, and that's uh same thing we were talking earlier about home service businesses. They're they're uh recession yes. resilient because yep. people are still gonna need HVAC, people are still gonna need roofing, you know, people still need their house painted, you know, uh electric work still needs to be done. And so these 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 industries are, are what's called recession proof. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's the number one thing. I mean, if you are someone that's new into being kind of like, hey, I want to start a business. I want to be an entrepreneur. Where should I focus? I would key in on that part. What is going to perform well when times are good and times are bad? Because right now we're going into a place where there's uncertainty. We don't know what the rest of the year is going to look like or even 2024 is going to look like. So don't pick something that requires us to just have this massive growth bull market to, you know, to rip and run. A lot of people made a lot of money in the last couple of years on NFTs and Bitcoin and things that were very speculative in nature that required just the general sentiment of the market to keep going up. If you're doing something new today, focus on what's going to win when times are good and times are bad. Home services is a great one. Storage is a good one. Real estate overall is good. Apartments, people are always going to need a place to live. Mobile home parks is the one that's really, really popular these days. Hey, people have to downsize. Let's give affordable housing in the form of a mobile home or an RV park. That's doing really, really well in this environment. So think about that for sure is like the number one thing I would give advice on. Yeah, and the neat part, what are you all doing too at Pepper Ridge is just implementing technology into the mix too, especially when you have a tech background, right? And yep. so utilizing that, especially for those asset classes can only, because now we're getting introduced to, AI now and now AI is going to be the next you know you got chat you know GPT yeah. and all that do you see AI kind of getting implemented in your business model eventually 100% I could see it eventually um, customer service is such a big part of our business we could probably answer 80 or 90% of the questions that come to us in customer service through like a sophisticated AI channel uh, pricing is a big thing, right? Every single day in storage we can reset our pricing on new customers and every month we can do it on existing customers there's definitely should be some kind of AI or intelligence around, let's look at a series of different inputs and decide what's the best price to put out there for today. You can even use AI to find, you know, I've even heard of some people, hey, because part of our process is we call the owners of storage facilities and say, hey, are you looking to sell? There's gonna be voice powered AI one day that's probably able to hold that conversation with an owner and we don't have to do it ourselves. So absolutely, I'm fascinated by what's happening in AI. I keep a close eye on it because I think things are gonna move in that direction. And ChatGPT is like the biggest, windfall moment in ai that i've seen in a long time right yeah yeah no it's it's, it's remarkable i think i saw uh, uh someone put online that it passed uh uh the, the um uh final exam at like wharton no uh, yeah way. like yeah business exam or something <laughs> like that and it passed the medical uh the medical medical entr entrance exam to that get in medical school crazy. so yeah i thought that was crazy <laughs> that's nuts but it's, you know i could see that because medical and medicine is like you have to remember a series of facts like i could see that being used in medicine that hey you know a junior doctor just goes to an ai bot to say here's the symptoms what are the potential diagnosis and diagnoses i don't know the word but that's yeah. crazy that that happened man that's i hadn't heard that yeah yeah and so <laughs> no for sure and so i was i was reading last night a few of the posts that you you post on link uh, on linkedin and i just thought one of them stood out to me was you know as we wrap up here yep. is you you talked about you know entrepreneurship and you know a lot of my, my listeners are you know early early stage entrepreneurs uh -huh. and about entrepreneur entrepreneurship being sexy right and mm. the 70 plus hour work week and like you mentioned earlier having when you first started your business you had to do all you're wearing so many hats um, I guess what advice would you give, you know, entrepreneurs that are, you know, in the early stage and, and they're, they're stuck or they're, you know, they're, they're crying or they just need more help and they, they, they have this idea or they're, they, they're scared to move forward with something. What advice would you give them? Because online, 
you see a lot of gurus, you see a lot of courses, and they it, it seems so enticing because all you got to yeah. do is put a camera, be in front of a nice yeah. car, or uh, be in a big house, and everyone sees it. And it's like, oh, okay, they're a millionaire. And all you have to do is say, hey, I'm a millionaire, and people will believe you, right? Yeah. Hey, I made ten grand last month. Let me you know sign up in the link below, and I'll, I'll show you how to do it, right? But it's a lot of that going on in today's age, and it's so much noise. But guys like guys like you are really in the trenches, really out here, really building building innovative things that can really change how people do business. And so, what what advice would you give those entrepreneurs who see you know the camera, the lights, and the flashy things, but you they know that it's it's real, it's hard work. It's a, it's a lot of work. Yeah, hundred percent. No, two things, and one of them you basically already said. You got to stay patient. And you got to stay the course and you can't get so absorbed in what you see on social media because honestly, nothing good comes easy. If, you know, like if drop shipping was so easy or if this was so easy or, you know, flipping houses or Airbnb so easy, then everyone would be rich. There's a reason everyone's not rich because this stuff is not supposed to be easy. So don't get fooled. Don't believe that, yeah, this is something that in six months I should be a millionaire and it's going to be so easy. If it was like that, everyone would do it. So don't compare yourself to others. Stay your course. Stay patient. Understand it's going to be a grind for a few years. And that's kind of how they people get weeded out. Because the people that can make it through the other side of a three or four year grind that you have to put in are the ones that are successful. And there's a reason that this whole country is not just full of everyone that's a bunch of multimillionaires. You have to get through that hurdle. You have to pay your dues. And appreciate that. And don't get so caught up in what you see online. And the second biggest thing I could say... The most helpful thing is try to find a community. Try to find even, forget a community, one other person that's doing something similar. It doesn't have to be in the same industry. One other person that's also just started their business. One other person that's also grinding the way you're grinding. Because you won't feel so alone or you won't feel so, oh my God, this is so hard for me and it must be so easy for everyone else. Hear about the struggles somebody else is having. Because one, you guys are going to support each other. You guys are going to grow together. You're all going to have fun. But you're going to feel a lot better about where you're at too. You know, okay, I'm not the only one that can't sleep at night. I'm not the only one that's losing my hair. I'm not the only one sobbing in tears after like a hundred hour work week. Everyone go, goes through it. So find, if if not a community, one other person. If you can't find a person, go online, go on Reddit, go on Twitter, type in what you're working on. I guarantee you're going to find people doing the exact same thing with the exact same challenges. And you're going to be like, okay, this is normal. I'm all right. Well said. No, Faraz, I really appreciate you joining me today. Enjoy that conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, Donnie. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, appreciate it. You're listening to The Brilliant Ones Podcast with me, your host, Donnie Adams, a show about entrepreneurs and the companies they build. Join me weekly as I speak with entrepreneurs from all over who share their experiences and advice on the companies they created. And be sure to follow us on YouTube and Instagram at The Brilliant Ones.